We will be reading from Mark 4, verses 21 through 34 today. And he said to them, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them, Pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given, and from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And he said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. And he said, With what can we compare the kingdom of God, or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants, and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade." With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. This is the word of the Lord. Yeah, there we go. Thank you, Elizabeth. Um, Welcome. Glad that you are here. My name is Russell. I'm the pastor for our community. And um, our contract with Paradance, um, they can move us occasionally. And so that's why we're not upstairs um, today. And I know that there's like some noise going on. It's, um, the ballet music is better than Daft Punk, you know, definitely. I think I can pay attention uh, a little bit. But um, when, we, when I pray, let's try and, you know, kind of hone in. And I know, I know there's a lot of movement and going on, but I pray that we could be um, fully here and uh, fully present. And, and I hope that uh, that's what reunion is. I, I pray that when you leave this place, you say, that's a refuge for me. That's a place where I'm learning and growing spiritually, and I'm, I'm thinking outside of myself. And so um, we'll be in this Mark chapter 4 passage today. If you want to pull it up on your phone, I'm going to be really walking through it. I'm not going to be able to answer every question in the text. Um, not that I could anyway, um, but it's a, it's a complex set of parables, but it would benefit to, if you want to grab your phone or you have uh, a journal or a Bible with you, that would be good today. Let's pray, and then we'll get into this, all right? And so, Father, we live in a world of endless distractions, um, and this place is no different. We know that um, there's always something to pull us away, so I pray right now that uh, you would center us, and I pray that Um, you would be present in this place, that um, our desire would be to understand. When we come to a set of stories like this, uh, the question is, can we understand what it is that you're trying to say? So God, give us ears to hear, and I um, I pray that we would feel your presence in this place, to be reminded that we're not alone, uh, that we're safe, and that we're loved, and we can be known in this place. And so God, may the words of my mouth and meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight. It's in your name we pray. Amen. 
All right, so um, last week we looked at Jesus' first parable in the book of Mark, and what we decided is that uh, stories are inherently interesting. And so when you, when you read a story, whether that be uh, a book or you watch a movie or a friend tells you a story, there's actually um, a dialogue taking place, and the dialogue that comes alongside the story that's being told is your life. Right? And so these two stories are actually coming up alongside each other. And what you're doing is you're bringing your life, um, your wins, your losses, your traumas, your successes, your family of origin, all of that you bring, and the stories come into dialogue with one another. And what we found actually last week is that that is exactly what a parable is. The word parable actually comes from uh, two Greek words. Um, para, the first part is, uh, uh, I have this here. Uh, which means to come alongside of, and then balo, which means uh, to throw. And so a parable means, um, there you go, to throw alongside of. And so that's the idea of a parable, is that Jesus took everyday occurrences, things that everyone was familiar with, and he would throw it alongside a concept of the kingdom of God. And so what Jesus would do is Jesus would tell stories. He would tell absolutely ordinary stories in the first century about soils and seeds, meals and coins and sheep and farmers and merchants. And in fact, they weren't even overtly spiritual stories. Uh, one parable has a setting in a church, and only a couple even mention the name God whatsoever. And so what we decided last week is that a parable is like a Trojan horse. It sneaks into the heart. It keeps its message at a distance. And what it does is it begins to slow down our comprehension. So we start asking the question, what does this really mean? How do I go about understanding what God is saying? And as that's locked into our heart, it's unlatched. What does it do? It deposits wisdom about the kingdom of God. It deposits grace and deposits truth. And all of it comes around to say, here's what your God is like. And one of the things I didn't mention about the parables uh, last week that is really, really important to understand about um, parables in the first century is literacy wasn't widespread. Um, Manuscripts in this time took a long time to produce. Uh, They would have been very expensive. And so what that would create culturally is an oral culture. And so people was, everything was by ear. And so you, you come and you listen to a rabbi like Jesus, and you're like, okay, wait, what did he say? I'm trying to catch that. And you take the nugget away, and then you have to go think of it later. Um, but the oral culture gave way at the printing press. Anybody? Year? 14... 1492, that was a guess, right? 1430s, Gutenberg, right? Like, okay, so oral culture gives way to visual culture or print culture. Um, uh, And then what happens is, actually what's fascinating to think about now, um, and there's a slide for this, what's fascinating to think about is the ways in which oral culture gave way to print culture. And now when we come to the parables, because of our predominantly Um, visual culture because of the internet, right? The internet has brought in a a, a different way for us uh, to think about things. And so even as we approach today, I want to keep that sort of on the front of our minds in the sense that maybe the best way to say it is we don't really know how to listen or read anymore. Maybe, Maybe that's the truth as we come to it. Like we hear nuggets, but we can't take in the full thing. And so visual culture comes into play there. And so you can listen to last week's teaching on our podcast or YouTube, whatever. But today we come to a trio of parables and they seem disconnected, but the gospel writer Mark has grouped them together because of a common theme. And the common theme is the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God was Jesus' central message in, um, throughout the Gospels. But in chapters 1 through 3 specifically, we learn about what the inbreaking kingdom of God is about. But we've said this in the past. Mark is very unique in his Gospel writing. 
Jesus is not talking or teaching a lot. Like even thinking about the amount of parables that Mark contains, it's, it doesn't compare um, to Matthew or to Luke. And the reason is, is because we get to see Jesus doing, right? If Mark is like a, a film genre, it's like an action movie. It's like doing no dialogue, right? And so what Jesus is doing in chapters one through three is he's saying, follow me. I'm going to heal the sick. I'm preaching good news. I'm eating with the unacceptable. I'm forgiving sins. I'm touching lepers. And so chapters one through three are like a visual. Here's what the kingdom of God looks like in your midst. And then these three short parables, what Jesus is doing is he's actually saying, now what I'm going to do is slow down and I'm going to give you a vocabulary for the kingdom of God. Here's what the kingdom of God is like in dialogue form. And so what I want to do today is look at sort of three movements that we make inside of the kingdom of God and that really help um, tether us to understanding what the kingdom of God looks like in our midst because even the concept uh, escapes definition uh, by its very nature. And so we'll talk about that today. So here's the first parable, verse 21. And he said to them, is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? Right, so a lamp in this time is not like you and I might think of it. A lamp is probably like a flame, like an open flame. And so Jesus is being a little bit sarcastic here. He's like, you're going to put a lamp under someone's bed. Like, no, you would not do that. It would light on fire, right? And so you don't want to do that. For nothing is, he says, hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. For anyone who has ears to hear, let him hear. And here's, this, here's the point of the parable. Jesus is saying, the kingdom of God has been hidden but now it's made manifest. Now the kingdom of God is revealed. And what Jesus is actually saying is, is I'm the lamp. I'm the one that actually uh, gives revelation to what the kingdom of God is like. And so the kingdom of God, the first parable, goes from secret to revealed. It goes from secret to revealed. Uh, Mark chapter 1, um, verse 14, uh, Jesus stands up. It says, John was arrested and Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. One of the most important verses in the Bible, Jesus stands up and says, it's time. He's marking time, and he's saying, here's what I've come to do. The kingdom of God is at hand, and here's how you respond to it. Repent and believe in the gospel. And so often, we read passages of scripture like this, and we're like, oh, that sounds like pretty seminal. But we don't ask why, or we don't take it further. And so remember, when you read the Bible, you are not uh, the first reader of it, right? You're not the, uh, the, the first recipient of this. And so imagine for a second, you are a first century, first century Israelite reading this. For hundreds of years, the Israelite people are waiting for a kingdom and looking for a king. And so in the first century in Judea, the, the Israelite people were under Roman oppression. They were persecuted. They were being killed for their faith. And their hope is that God would someday bring a Messiah, a long-awaited king, and it would restore their literal nation, right? God is sending his son, and Jesus is saying, I'm actually here to reign and to rule. And so um, maybe the best way to think of it is um, national restoration, political restoration, economic recovery, environmental recovery. In fact, when you read the Old Testament, it's very vivid um, in an environmental sense about what the kingdom of God would do in their midst. And so this is a very um, literal thing. If you're a first century Jew and you hear a rabbi like Jesus stand up in this way, you'd be thinking the restoration of, uh, of humanity and the restoration of our culture has begun. Hope is present again. 
And so when you read the four Gospels, yes, here, biographies of Jesus, we're learning about the story and history of Jesus, but they're also telling a story of Jesus as the continuation and the climax of Israel's story. That's what the kingdom of God is about. It's about fulfilling that, but also inaugurating something new even today. And so we could hear it the same way, renewal, restoration, flourishing in life. And so this week I was... um, this week I spent a lot of time, when I was reading this, I was kind of laying this alongside, um, thinking about two years ago. Uh, two years ago, um, uh, it's almost two years since the start of the pandemic, and our lives were normal, right? Two years ago, we go into the office, we go into the classroom, we're out multiple nights a week with family and friends, we're planning trips, and then the pandemic struck, right? Um, here's a picture, um, it's kind of small, but it's one of my favorite pictures of, uh, here's the origins of our church like right before the pandemic. Some of you were there, and um, this is my living room, and just thinking about um, the ways that we were making plans, and we were dreaming, and we were thinking, and we were having conversation, and then this thing um, called the coronavirus started sneaking into our vocabulary, right? And things changed so quickly, and um, I was left you know, thinking, what do we do now? And so we go from this to isolation really quickly, and for me, I was reflecting on that season of saying, um, God, where are you in this? And, and if I'm honest, I, my, my prayers were really desperate in that time because I was like, we have a plan, we have a trajectory, we have deadlines, we just raised money to start this church, and like all these things um, lining up, and then all of a sudden, it's confusing, and it's disorienting. I'm racked with anxiety. I don't know what to do with my emotions. Four weeks into the, um, into the, you know, the lockdowns, I'm like taking all my emotions out of my wife, and she's like, we got to do something about this. You know, it's like, I'm just trying to unload here. And so maybe you were thinking this in the, same, in the same way, like plugging away at work or trying to like pretend and figure things out, but all of a sudden you're just left confused, right? No idea what to do. I remember um, Katie and I, we, we literally at night would just get um, in our bedroom, we'd just come to the end of our bed and we'd just get on our knees and pray. And if I could capture those prayers like in a sentence or a phrase, it would be this, we're trying, help us. Like we're trying, help us. And I think, I think that maybe is a better way to understand the posture of ancient Israel waiting for king. We're trying, help us. I'm trying to get my life together. I'm trying to sober up. I'm trying to figure out how to think outside of myself. I'm trying to figure out what to do with when, I, when I graduate. God, I'm trying, help me. And what this parable is beginning to um, illuminate to us is that in the kingdom of God, God becomes real. He's been in secret, but he's being illuminated now through the person of Jesus. And so it does beg the question, I don't want to spend a lot of time doing this, but it does beg the question, what is the kingdom of God or what is the, when is the kingdom of God or where is the kingdom of God? And I would just simply define the kingdom of God like this. The kingdom of God is the king's power over the king's people in the king's place. The king's power over the king's people in the king's place. And so Jesus steps onto the scene. He says, the kingdom of God is at hand. He's saying, I'm bringing the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is in your midst where Jesus is king, right? And uh, we studied this a few months ago, but, ba- but essentially um, the, where, where we live in now, the kingdom of God is what we would say is already, like God, Jesus inaugurated it, but it's not yet. What does it mean? It's poking through, right? We see small evidences of the kingdom of God, yet we know um, our world is extremely broken, right? 
but we get glimpses of it. We, we get glimpses of environmental hope. We get glimpses of political hope. We get glimpses of economic and national hope. Those, that, that does start to resonate. And I would say when we see those things, it's the kingdom of God's power, people, and place in our midst. But how do we posture ourselves to be prepared for the kingdom of God? Like what, what does that look like? What does that look like hi- historically? And what does it look like to be ready to say, I'm, I'm ready for like, Jesus to break into my life? And then, and then the other way to think about it, too, is to think outside of ourselves, too. How does that look in a bigger sense? Uh, this, is, this is fascinating. I thought this might be kind of interesting for us to think about. Um, three major religious groups in Jesus' day that were ready for the kingdom of God to break into their midst. Uh, you had three primary. You probably heard of two of them. The Essenes, the Zealots, and the Pharisees. And so the Essenes were like this separatist community. Um, sometimes they're called the Qumran community. And what they would do is they would withdraw from civilization. They would hang out in the desert, and through prayer and fasting, what they would try to do is like transcend this world. Essentially what they were saying is like, if I can feel enlightened enough, maybe, the king, maybe I would feel the kingdom of God come in my midst. And so they believed that's how it would manifest. Next were the zealots. The zealots thought... Um, if, if we could get military might and we could conquer, if we could build an army that was powerful and strong enough, maybe what God would do in response is send a military leader like King David. And you see this actually throughout the Gospels. The, the disciples are confused continually about what, what Jesus is trying to do and why he um, subverts power and how he's probably a pacifist in, in many ways. But basically they were saying if we can build an army against Rome, maybe we can, have, um, we can conquer in a national sense. And then the third group were the Pharisees. And they thought that the, the kingdom of God would come through strict obedience to the Torah. Right? If we just obey uh, the Jewish law meticulously enough... Um, they had the Ten Commandments, and then they just put laws on top of that, and laws on top of that, and laws on top of that. And it was a way of saying, hey, actually, if we can just be holy enough, God would have to come down. Like, that, that would be the only thing that would make sense for God to do. And so they put immense pressure on the backs of Jewish people. Don't do this on the Sabbath. Don't eat this. And, of course, what do we know? The kingdom of God doesn't come like that. Right? The kingdom of God doesn't come by becoming a separatist community, by withdrawing from the dominant culture. The kingdom of God doesn't come through political dominance. We know that. The kingdom of God doesn't come through a strict moral observance or a moral majority. But the kingdom of God comes when Jesus shows up. The kingdom of God has been a secret, but now it's being revealed. And I think it's tempting in our time um, to be a deist. Like to believe that like God spun the earth and just like let it, let it go, right? I think it's actually tempting to believe that because you say, what makes, what, what makes sense of the chaos in our world? Like, okay, well, actually, that makes sense, that God actually started everything and just left it on its own. And I think I, one of the things I love about this um, passage is it gives us a language for saying, no, God isn't absent. He's not just spun us off and, and let us do our own things, but God is very present in the midst of humanity. He did it in his, pers- in, in his son, Jesus. Jesus shows up, says, I'm the lamp, and he still seems to, to be at, at work. And so um, I'll just leave this with you for this, for this first parable. But how have you seen that in your own life? Like, even if, even if you're struggling to believe, but like, how, how have you seen that in your own life to say, you know what, I don't even know maybe what that is, but it seemed like God was present in that. Like, in a, it could be like in, in a freedom you felt. It could be um, in an economic situation that just made sense where you would look at it and you would say, you know what, I felt like God was in the midst of that. And so that's how the kingdom of God shows up. What's the next parable? Uh, verse 26. And he said, the kingdom of God is if a man 
should scatter seed on the ground. And so this parable is actually building on uh, the parable of the sower that we looked at last week. He sleeps and rises night and day. The seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. I love that phrase. He knows not how, and the earth produces by itself. Meaning, growth is not something the sower can force, right? Um, I think what I love about this parable, uh, this specific parable the most, is it gives us actually a dose of needed reality. Uh, The free market consumer ideology that we swim in uh, really values efficiency and control and uh, gives us a way of thinking that um, makes our world very predictable and in our box, right? And so there's, there's amazing features of this. So tonight... Uh, if you wake up in the middle of the night, it's 3 a.m., and you're like, man, I'm really craving a steak with a side of melted butter. Like, we live in an amazing city and an amazing world where you could get that. Like, right? You could do that tonight if you woke up at 3 in the morning. Or, like, one of the things I love about the predictability of our world is, like, ordering packages now is amazing. Like, if you, you know where your package is every step of the way, except in New York, where is it always? sitting in New Jersey, right? It's always sitting in New Jersey, and then at some point it makes it here, all right? That's what happens. But I think what Jesus is saying here has profound implications on humanity and understanding the kingdom of God. It's being made fruitful, it's growing, and it's completely out of your control. Like control is an absolute illusion. The parable is in many respects saying there's a clear line of what you can control and what you can't control, right? Like the, 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 the farmer, like, yes, he is, he is cultivating the ground and planting seed and uh, maybe he waters it, but then he has to mind his business, right? He wakes up day and night, he uh, pops by the gym, he goes to Trader Joe's, he watches TV, but then he has to go to bed again because he has no control over the growth because control is an illusion. But if you have faith, you understand that even though control is an illusion, that doesn't mean chaos, there's a graphic that I kept on my desktop um, all through the early uh, parts of the pandemic, um, and it's spheres of control. So the, the outside is the things that we cannot control, and so I let go of. Did anybody see this? This was really helpful to me, um, and so uh, it's kind of small, so I'll read some of them to you here. Um, I can't control the actions of others. I can't predict what will happen. I can't read other people's minds, or I can't control the amount of toilet papers at the store. You remember that? I can't control the economy or how long school will be out. And so what do we have to do to those things? We have to let go. It's a delineation of the things that we can control. But what can we control? And these are the things that we can choose to focus on, right? I can choose to limit my time on social media or watching the news. I can control finding things to do at home. I can control how I treat my spouse, how I follow recommendations. And so I think this is really, um, this is a spiritual task. This is a spiritual task, and I think that this is important to to think of in that way because otherwise um, we're tempted to think this is good psychology and we just got to fix our minds and everything will be be okay, but but rather it's a way of saying, I do believe that God is at work. I do believe God is moving and that he's up to something, and often what that means is we draw boundaries around what we control and what we actually believe that God is up to. And so here's the journey, the parable number two, the journey inside the kingdom of God, is actually a move from independence to dependence. It's a move from independence to dependence. 
One of the most spiritual, um, difficult tasks in our lives is the word surrender. It's a, a, a way of saying, I, I, don't, I don't know how to do this anymore, and I need you to help me. Which is ironic, we looked at those, um, those three groups, the Essenes, the Zealots, the Pharisees, they're all trying to figure out how to ascend to God, how to fight their way to the kingdom, how to put moral obligation into the life of, of people as a way of bringing the kingdom of God. And God's like, I'm doing the growing. Like where, where Jesus shows up, that's where the kingdom is. And it's so subversive. And sometimes in our lives, we know it's like grasping at straws to find change when in fact it actually has to do more with surrender and letting go. I was just telling my friend this week, um, a time in my life where I had the most faith um, was when I had no job, I had no house, I lived in my in-law's basement. It's pretty sweet down there actually, so I'm not that mad about it. But um, everything I owned fit in a 2001 Honda Civic. The, the uh, ceiling like fabric was like falling off. I glued it so many times and then I just let it go. Um, I sold it for $1,500 in a hot dog, no joke. Um, and my life, like you would look at my life at that point and you'd be like, wow, that's chaotic. Like that's messy, that's terrifying. And then all of a sudden, um, Katie and I got pregnant and that was not planned. It was like, okay, I guess also we're having a kid. And then we're like, all right, I think we're supposed to move to New York. And it's like all, our lives just look terribly messy at that point. And I look back and I would say, I think that was the season in my life where I was the most surrendered where I had the most faith. I didn't have other things to rely on or lean on, and it was like, in that season, God made a lot of sense to me. And so do you believe that God will take care of you? I, I can't almost like help but prod, like my A-type personalities in here, like to prod at you a little bit. Like, are you willing to let go a little bit? Like, to let some of the tasks go and to believe for a second, does God have my best interest in mind? I think he does, and I'm leaning on him to understand faith in this season. Uh, Henry Nouwen says this. He says, To wait open-endedly is an enormously radical attitude toward life. It is trusting that something will happen to us far beyond our own imaginings. It is giving up control over our future and letting God define our life. It is living with the conviction that God, listen to this, God molds us according to God's love and not according to our fear. The spiritual life is a life in which we wait actively present to the moment, expecting that new things will happen to us, new things that are far beyond our own imaginations or predictions. That indeed is a very radical stance towards life in a world preoccupied with control. God molds us according to God's love and not according to our fear. It's a transition from independence to dependence. What's the last one? Verse 30. And he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God or what parable shall we use? And so I sort of imagine Jesus just like walking along and just like trying to find something to talk about or compare the kingdom of God to. It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground, it is the smallest of all seeds on earth. Yet when it's sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. The kingdom of God is like a small seed but it grows up into something larger. And we know, we know very well that the process of germination or something coming to fruition, it, it takes time, right, to, to work and to allow God to get in there and work. Uh, one of the verses in the Bible that was sticking out to me this week is in the Old Testament in Zechariah chapter 4, um, and the prophet says, who despises the day of small beginnings? Who despises the day of small 
beginnings, right? There are so many small, inconsequential days in our life where nothing happens, right? Like, you don't even remember them, but you know over and over and over again that something happened on those days, and yet it's brought you to today. And I think what Jesus is beginning to say here is he's beginning to talk about, you know, his kingdom ministry and how it's going to come to fruition, how the 12 are going to expand, and how the kingdom of God, um, the church, is going to grow. And this, war, uh, this parable is a warning to don't, don't look down on things of small beginnings. Don't look down on small conversations. Don't look down on small acts of love that amount to more. God loves to be in the midst of what seems inconsequential. And so the third movement in the, inside the kingdom of God is a move from insignificance to significance. Insignificance to significance. So two stories and I'll, uh, I'll wrap up here. Um, in January, we, uh, we hosted a, a two-day discussion around generosity. It was called a Journey of Generosity. It was an awesome time. We got to sit and have conversations and talk about our relationship with our finances. It was amazing. And uh, about a week and a half later, I get a text from my wife, and this is what she said. She says, I think the journey of generosity worked on me because I've just been giving away all my money from a place of joy and loving it. And I was like, all? Like, all money? Like, your money is my money. Like, so what are we doing here, you know? And so she comes home, and I'm like, okay, tell me the story, you know, what's happening? And she says, well, I was in Brooklyn, and I'm walking by this tent, and these guys are just dancing. They're playing music uh, so loud, and they come up to me, and they say, what's the only state in America that ends with the letter K? And anybody? New York. New York. It's obvious, right? And I'm like, Katie, this game still works? Like, no, this game should not work anymore. Like, no, walk away as soon as that person asks you, right? And they were like, yo, you're smart. And I'm like, no, you're not smart. Like, that's not smart. And so they said, would you like to donate to breast cancer research? And of course, they like have her hooked at that point, right? And she's like, yeah, I'll give you five bucks. And they're like, no, 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 come on, like, do more, do more. And she's like, all right, $10, all right, all right. And so they're like, thanks for your generosity. And they hand her this iPad and they're like, fill out this form, give us your billing information. I'm like, Katie, stop. Like, you're giving your information away. Like, your identity is gone, all right? Um, and I'm like, no Apple Pay, like, no cash. And she's like, no, they wouldn't take it. And so she's filling out this paperwork. And what do they say? They say, hey, actually, the minimum donation is 100. I'm like, Katie, walk away. Like, what are you doing? And they're like, but if you buy a raffle ticket, you could be entered into a trip to go to Jamaica and you could give $30. And she's like, all right, fine, take my money. And I was like, oh, what are you funding, Katie? Right? And so I was talking to her about this story, and she's like, she's like I was happy to do it. And she said, um, you know, Noni Lowry had um, breast cancer. as a family friend of her, Noni. And I was like, Katie, you're like the best, right? Like, you're absolute best. I see a situation where someone's trying to rob you, and you see a situation where you can plant a small seed. But here's what I kept thinking about with this idea of the seed, is maybe Katie planted a seed with these two guys in Brooklyn by her generosity, hanging around and talking, but the truth is, is Katie actually planted a seed in me. Katie planted a seed in me to think about the ways that I spend my time and am patient with other people, the way I think about money, the way that I think about um, my own relationship to all of these things, really. She planted the seed in me. Uh, Jean Vanier says, we are not called by God to do extra, extraordinary things, 
but to do ordinary things with extraordinary love. And so, what about you? Small seeds, what's like the little things that are just either being planted in you or that God is like, how are you planting these seeds? And maybe, maybe even this morning you're like, I don't even like, I'm kind of grasping this idea of the kingdom of God. I would say at the bare minimum, we all believe that we should be good people and love our neighbor, right? So let's even start there in terms of planting small seeds. How do we do that in a small way? And here's where I want to end, because I think we don't give God enough credit in terms of proximity. Like, you live where you live for a reason, right? You're in your neighborhood for a specific reason, and I love that, that our church is sort of like rooted here, and then it's like we gather here, and then we scatter, right? And so my question then becomes, how does God want you to plant a small seed that could go into a mustard seed? I don't, I don't know, a mustard tree? I don't know. But how could people come and feel like they can rest in the shade, the branches that you're, the things that you're planting? And so here's what I want to do to end today. Let's close our eyes. Let's let it be quiet. And I'll just ask you this, what are you thinking about? I know the parable is a bit scattered. But let me just ask you two questions. What is God saying to you? What is God saying to you? Here's the second question. What will you do about it? And so, Father, I thank you for today. Sometimes I, I preach and I've, <laughs> I've scratched the surface of understanding uh, these parables, these very, very short, simple, elementary parables. But it amounts to deep questions that we have about the things that you're doing, the ways that you're at work in our world. And so, God, I pray that you would leave us with those um, wonderings, those ruminations, where we ask um, what is the kingdom of God? Where is the kingdom of God leading me? What does it mean to respond to the kingdom of God? How do I love my neighbor? How do I serve my neighbor? How do I think about the ways that I um, give? How do I perceive people that are walking on the streets? And what does that say about me? And I pray, God, what that would ultimately leave us to is an, um, an ultimate act, um, act of surrender um, to your grace. And we know that you won't leave us void in that. It's in your name we pray. Amen.